Hello, and welcome to H5 Explores, a podcast where we dive headfirst into the matters in the minds of legal and compliance professionals. I'm your host, Kimberly Culpepper, and I'm here today with Jeff Grobart, Associate Director of Professional Services at H5. In today's episode, we're going to dive deep into the topic of whistleblowers and whistleblower complaints. Jeff, welcome to H5 Explores, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Kim. Thanks for uh, having me. Oh, great. Well, now you're our resident expert on whistleblowers, so I'm glad you can join us for this topic. And I want to go ahead and get started basically setting the stage. You know, we see a lot in the news about whistleblowers, but I think it'll be really helpful for us to start with explaining who they are and what they do. Well, it's actually kind of a complex question. There's a lot of different ways to answer that, but I think whistleblowers in general fall into a couple of basic categories. One is they can be, think of them as white hat employees within an organization. They see something happening within their company or within their industry, and they want to do the right thing. And so they alert the appropriate authorities and, and let them know that they see something that's happening that, that they think shouldn't be. And the other main type of whistleblower are going to be activists who are attempting to speak on behalf of the general public in an interest of trying to prevent runaway corporate or government behavior. And so what they're doing is they may be researching publicly available data or observing things such as just common news broadcasts and seeing or at least correlating behaviors by corporations or the government with things that they consider to be of public harm and then will make a report trying to inhibit the behaviors of, again, a corporate entity or a portion of the government from taking those actions that they see as injurious to the public at large or a particular interest group, and in doing so, trying to raise awareness and essentially getting the message out about why what they see as this wrong is wrong. And so even if they are unsuccessful in in stopping the behavior outright, at a minimum, they're able to then gain some traction from a public interest point of view, which may in then turn raise money for their particular interests or raise more public awareness and interest in the cause that they support. In both cases, though, they're, they're reporting these perceived, whether it's illegal or unethical behaviors, to the appropriate authorities. And who are the authorities that a whistleblower would typically report to? Well, it really depends. In the case of the the Whitehead employees, it could be an in-house reporting mechanism just within their own corporate structure. So it could be a ombudsman or a an ethics committee or, or, or something along those lines where they are trying to manage the situation in-house so that it prevents any behaviors from reaching the scale of being something illegal or something that would need to be reported to, say, law enforcement or a a federal agency or something along those lines. But in other instances, it could be local law enforcement or federal law enforcement or regulatory agencies. So it could be the 
DEA, it could be the FDA, it could be the EPA, you know, any number of those alphabet soup agencies that the the government likes to uh, put together. (laughs) And it's not just restricted to U.S.-based governmental agencies as well, but but this is true internationally as well. And so it can really span the, the scope of really anything that you could think of. And along those lines, it's not restricted to just, say, law enforcement like we like I mentioned earlier, but it could be something along the lines of financial crimes, which might be more interesting for the SEC to be able to, or, or more appropriate for the SEC to investigate, because it could be insider trading behaviors or, or something along those lines that they're the better or the best arm of the government to investigate and prosecute as as necessary. And then we've seen very recently a whole spate of inspectors general within the the federal government making headlines, whether because they're being replaced or because they're opening investigations because of whistleblower activities within federal agencies as well. And so even within the agencies, there's whistleblower activity and mechanisms for the reporting and investigation of those types of reports for an inspector general to then be able to dig in and investigate the reported behavior or activities and figure out what exactly is going on and whether or not it it should have been happening or not and take the appropriate actions to remediate. So it sounds like we're hearing, you know, that the whistleblowers are really people who are trying to do the right thing in, in a variety of different ways. But why do you think someone makes the decision to become a whistleblower? I I think there's a lot of different motivations. Like I said earlier with the white hat employees, oftentimes people just want to do the right thing. And so they want to raise their hand and say, I saw something. And so I'm going to say something, you know, it's not that far removed from what we see in airports or train stations. And if you see a, a bag left on a platform, you want to do the right thing in those situations. At the same time, there's there's other considerations as well. So, for instance, the SEC in particular has a specific program set up for whistleblowers where if the tip or tips that whistleblowers provide leads to a conviction and the information that the whistleblower provides is substantive and meaningful to the prosecution and conviction, then there's financial rewards that are available for the, the whistleblower. And as a result... For some people, that might be cause enough to be able to tip them into providing information to the government or to an agent, uh, to law enforcement to make that happen. And then the other part of it is, you know, when we're talking about activists, being able to draw attention to something that they see as being potentially dangerous or injurious to public at large, just being able to have something in the news and draw awareness to it is sufficiently meaningful for them that that's the motivating factor for them is is just the awareness component of it, whether or not it actually leads to a change in policy or fines, convictions, or anything in between. But it's great. And, you know, you've really talked about why someone would become a whistleblower, but we also see in the news that, you know, there's a lot of topics around whistleblower protection and which kind of indicates there might be drawbacks to being a whistleblower. So, what do you see as, as a drawback to actually becoming a whistleblower and doing a whistleblower c- complaint? Whether or not the claims that they've made are true or not is something that an investigator or a court or an adjudic- you know, somebody has to adjudicate in one way or another. And until that process is taken care of and a decision has been made, the only other thing that's out there is the court of public opinion. And so 
as we know, things can get highly politicized and highly, uh, you know, incendiary at times. And so people in general are prone to take things to a rather extreme level. And so it could mean personal safety concerns, property safety concerns. And so being able to protect whistleblower identities and being able to keep them safe and protected while the entire process kind of is allowed to unfold and, and follow its natural path is really critical to be able to ensure that the investigation itself is allowed to proceed uninhibited, but then also that the whistleblower is allowed to live their life and not face any kind of negative repercussions, whether professionally or personally. So, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, and this is kind of a, obviously a hot button issue, but let's let's kind of shift gears and talk a bit about, you know, what happens once a whistleblower makes a complaint. And, you know, I'd really love to start with, like, if a whistleblower comes to a corporation first, you know, what happens? They make the report. What's the next step that a corporation might take? Sure. Within a corporate infrastructure, the most appropriate thing to happen is right off the bat, there needs to be some kind of an internal investigation. And typically that internal investigation needs to be done in such a way that avoids any sense of impropriety or, or bias in, in the investigation, take a very neutral stance, and don't assume guilt or innocence on either side, and review the available information. So evaluate the claims. See how, how truthful and honest the whistleblower claims are based on the available information review pertinent data. So if it's, for instance, a intellectual property theft situation, review access logs to the IT infrastructure and see who had access to the files and the servers or the computers that were involved where the data that might have been copied or stolen sat and determine who or what may have had access to those locations. And then use other forms of technology to be able to help support that in investigation as well. So there's things like structured data analysis. So again, when we're talking about financial crimes, for instance, digging into databases and being able to appropriately query them and, and uncover not just what do they say, but getting back to the idea of user logs and, and change records and things like that, being able to unearth that kind of information as part of the literally detective work that goes into these type, types of internal investigations really becomes very important because it allows you to be able to determine what exactly happened. And then again, getting back to the idea of talking about email and Word documents or PowerPoint presentations or anything else that somebody might have created as part of their day-to-day -day work life or, or stuff that they sent by Gmail, for instance, you can collect all of that information and collate it into a database and be able to leverage unstructured data and analytics as well, where you can do things like cluster the content together to be able to see what are the common words that these people are using or what are the uncommon words that they used? When did they do most of their communication? Are there outlier times or days for months and months Person X was only sending emails Monday through Friday between 9 and 5, but then suddenly on a particular Saturday, they're sending an email from their work computer on a Saturday night at 6 o'clock. That's going to stand out like a sore thumb if you go about a well-designed investigation that's designed to 
find those kinds of outlier events and to help you pull out the oddities so that you can figure out exactly what what was going on when when nobody was watching as it were would it also you know and i think that's a good point because you're you know if you're thinking about how people communicate you know if they're different times and different methods are really important but I think also it's within the communications itself, right? So like if someone, you know, is doing something nefarious or, you know, there's some sort of misconduct, they're not really going to go out and blatantly spell out that they're doing some sort of fraud. (laughs) So how would they, you know, if you're kind of reviewing the data, how important is it for you to start to understand patterns of communication and the ways that people might indicate that they're doing something that's, you know, not in the right kind of code of conduct that the company has. You're exactly right. And so understanding what the common language within the organization is, what the what the jargon is within the organization is really helpful. And finding when folks are going outside of those common usages, it can really unearth some interesting things. We we actually worked on a project at one point where in order to mask untoward <laughs> behaviors somebody was using pasta references instead of <laughs> discussing you know the actual bribes that were being used and so yeah we'll send over a, a package of rotini would stand in for the actual bad behavior and it took a little while to unearth this but eventually you start seeing these types of patterns where oh we've got rotini here and spaghetti there and lasagna over there and suddenly you start searching for all the different instances of pasta references and <laughs> We've got this massive pattern of behavior that we've uncra- you know unearthed this code that <laughs> that really then led to an amazing kind of unearthing of <laughs> crazy behavior that was going on right under the noses of the uh, corporate organization. Oh gosh, yeah. So they're not undercover chefs; they're actually doing something wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's switch gears and talk about what would happen if a whistleblower makes a report to a government agency. Is the process the same as if they were to go directly to a corporation? In many ways, it really is. The difference being is the power of the the government to be able to subpoena and acquire data. So while the corporation's goal is to try and keep the investigation small until it needs to go broad. The government, once they vet and determine that the whistleblower claim is valid and and worth investigating, they're more likely to go broad and then narrow over time. And so they're going to gather information from as many and as varied number of sources as possible. And, you know, over time, be able to narrow in on exactly what happened. And as far as that's concerned, once they start putting out subpoenas, for instance, it winds up being, if it's just to a single corporation, for instance, corporation can, of course, be belligerent or non-responsive, but that winds up being really not helpful for them in the long run, because the longer they stand in the way of the investigation, the more likely it is that the government is going to bring the full weight of their power and ability to bring fines and further litigation to bear and and make things quite painful for the, the, the corporate entity. And then in, in other situations, and, and I'm thinking of FCPA investigations in particular, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations, in those investigations in particular, once the government starts investigating or once organizations get a sense that the government might start investigating those types of claims, 
it's in their best interest to not just comply, but be the first to the door with information and to comply with any kind of request from the government. Because if you self-report, if you are cooperative, not only are you going to, as an organization, be able to minimize the pain, but you might actually completely avoid any kind of negative outcomes at all. Whereas if you're the last company to the table in a broad-ranging FCPA investigation, you're going to wind up dealing with the worst end of the regulatory stick, as it were, and have all of the pay more in fines, have more in terms of ongoing oversight, and just generally have a much worse go of it versus the companies or organizations that are more cooperative. But I mean, in terms of how the government actually goes about their actual analysis and investigation, it's going to be very reminiscent and very similar to what the corporate entities would would do from both the structured and unstructured data analysis and evaluation standpoint. They'd use similar tools, similar techniques. And so in that regard, it's not going to really be much of a different flavor. It's just being done in a different place and, and with a different set of data. Okay. And, you know, when you're talking about, you know, kind of corporations really working with the government, you know, one of the things that you see in the news is that when there are major fines, that can become, you know, fodder for a report, right? So there's a definite potential reputational damage that can come out if they are fined, right? So isn't self-reporting in their best interest if they can? Absolutely. Control the spin as much as you can. We came forward and, and we're reporting this to not just the government, but the world that this is a problem and that we're going to fix it and nobody's telling us what to do. And so that certainly helps things along. So what about if the whistleblower report happens or involves companies or people or activities that are outside of the United States? You know, What happens when you have those kind of cross-border issues? It's complicated. And it's because of the way that many other parts of the world view data privacy. For instance, Europe in particular, the EU, has laws on the books that protect individuals' data privacy. And so, and this is the GDPR laws that can definitely hamper U.S.-based investigations, especially if, you know, if the investigation is being conducted in the United States. When that happens, it may require having boots on the ground in the host country where the data resides. And before that data may be able to be released to the United States, things like consent from an individual whose data is implicated would need to be provided. In the absence of that, redaction of any and all personal information, so that could be names, addresses, phone numbers, you know, any other personally identifiable information. So what their work phone number is, what their email address is, you name it, it would need to be redacted. And so that can be a very time-consuming and expensive process just to be able to get the data into the U.S. to be able to comply with, say, a governmental investigation. 
Well, we're at time. I'm sure we could talk about that all day long, but really that's it for this episode of H5 Explorers. I want to thank Jeff Grobart for joining us today and providing valuable insights and information on whistleblower investigations. If you'd like H5 to explore something that's on your mind, email us at info at h5.com. Your topic could be the focus of a future episode. And if you'd like more information about H5 or anything you've heard today, visit us at www.h5.com. Until next time, I'm Kimberly Culpepper, and this is H5 Explorers.